Hello, Tabernacle. How are we doing tonight? Everybody good? Are you sure? Okay. Um, you guys are kind of known on Saturday nights as the uh, quiet, almost non-existent crowd. Uh, let's change that tonight just a little bit. Uh, I don't know if you noticed when I came up, it, it was a little dark, but uh, I took my shoes off. Did you see that? So these are my shoes right here. Uh, it's a brand new rug. And uh, the new rug made me think of my mom. And uh, in our house, if there was something new like that, and she raised four boys and uh, one daughter, she tried to keep the house clean. Uh, and the rule ended up being, as soon as you got in from the garage, your shoes were off, right? Anybody else grow up like that? Like we took care of it, and we, so we've got this new, it's not like holy ground. Um, this is in honor of my mom, uh, because even though I argued with her a lot, uh, I found out when I got older and had kids, she was right, <laughs> right? So uh, anybody who has a mom around them right now, turn her and say, I'm sorry you were right, okay? And if not, then send a message or make a phone call. Uh, it, it's important. So speaking of family, uh, you, you guys remember, uh, some of you might, most of you won't because you're younger. There was a show called uh, Kids Say the Darndest Things. Anybody? Raise your hand. Okay, good. We have participants. I like that. Do you remember how cute that show was? It was really, it was adorable, right? Uh, now, as a parent, when kids say the darndest things, uh, it could be adorable or highly embarrassing, uh, correct? Yes, okay. Um, so I have my brothers out there, and my brother Randy, who lives in Traverse City, uh, I, he had kids earlier than I did. He's eight years older than me, and I kind of learned how to be an uncle on his kids. And two of them, Ben and Joe, but in particular Joe the second, was this incredibly adorable little guy. We used to call him a toehead. That meant he, it wasn't derogatory. It meant that he had just set in blonde hair. It was white. Right? You've seen that? And he tanned perfectly, and he grew up to be this amazingly handsome guy, much like his uncle, but he did, not like me. Uh, but I spent a lot of time with him, and uh, there was this time when, when his brother and I were discussing something, and I, I cannot remember the context of the story, but it probably wasn't the most uplifting story in the world. Uh, about this other person, and he had his ears, and he was busy playing his stuff, and all of a sudden, he begins to talk about this building project that this other person was working on, and he looked up, and he goes, yeah, Uncle Tim, sounds like he did it really half-assed, and we're like, what? Because the first thought I'm having is his mom's going to kill me because she's going to assume it came from me. I have no idea why she would think that, but she's going to assume. It's like, what did you say? And he said, you know, he must have built it really half fast. <laughs> right? So I don't know what you were thinking. <laughs> but if you can have a sense of humor and not be offended by that, I hope you're not. It's not intended to be gratuitous. It's just... It's this story, and ever since that moment, 20, 30 years ago, I don't even remember how long, it's stuck with me all of the time. And yeah, we joke about it sometimes, but it's an incredibly descriptive word that a five-year-old might say, that somebody would do something half 
fast. That meant there wasn't a lot of intention that maybe they didn't follow the instructions. Maybe they didn't know how to use the tools. Maybe it wasn't that beautiful when they were done. Maybe it wasn't going to be long-lasting. So more than just a silly story, uh, something that could bring a smile to our face, there's a very important message uh, that we're going to pull out of Samuel today. And that message is entitled Half Measures. Half Measures. Uh, half Measures uh, is, is very familiar in my life, and we'll get to that in, in a little bit. Uh, and I'm going to start out by reading this chapter. And I'm not going to read all of it. I'm going to read the first 28 verses. Uh, and you can read the rest later uh, on your own. This is a definitively R-rated message. This is for violence. This is incredibly hard to understand. And to do justice to the entire chapter, I believe I broke it down that we would need to do three separate sermons through this uh, to pull out all of the meanings. And the one I'm going to pull out, it doesn't really deal with the violence. It deals with action after. But there's a very violent command that God gives. And many people really wrestle with this. Uh, I wrestle with it. How could a loving God do this? I don't understand, God. Why would this happen? And I'm reminded of a verse out of Isaiah. Isaiah 55, it's actually verses 8 and 9. And God tells us, in his own words, the difference between me and him. And it isn't to be demeaning at all to me. It's to help me understand. Deuteronomy tells us that there are some things that God wants us to know, and we're responsible for those things. And other things are his job, and we're to let those be. But this is what Isaiah says. For my thoughts, this is God, are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. To that I have to say amen. That is so wonderful. That is such beautiful news because I don't want a God that I can understand. I don't want a God that I can put in a clear definition. I want a God that I have to wrestle with sometimes. It's not always easy, but I want a God that's bigger than me. When he says, my thoughts are higher than the earth to the heavens, that's an immeasurable amount. It's, it, it's not some 26,000 miles. It's an immeasurable amount is what it means. God is immeasurably greater than we can possibly imagine. Scripture tells us that if we were to be in the presence of God as a human being, his glory would kill us. That's how magnificent it is. Genesis says in the very beginning, the one that I, when I'm, I'm having a debate or a conversation with somebody who's considering being a question, is read the first chapter of Genesis. It's a challenge. And the first sentence, in the beginning God created. How did he create? He spoke. None of us can fathom what that really is. So as we go into this chapter and we get to this controversial in our world, a little bit of a message 
There's so much more to pull out than to wrestle with how could that God have done that. God knew the people on the earth, all of them, intimately. So let's get right to the story. This is out of the ESV. This is Samuel 15, and I'm going to read the first 28 verses. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what the Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on their way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telium, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Canaanites, Go, depart. Go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. <coughs> Excuse me. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah, as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agog, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agog and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fatted calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. Verse 10, the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I have regret I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I perform the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, speak. And Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, 
and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul, typically, said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil, sheep and oxen and the best of things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, this is important, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as a sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Verse 24. Saul said to Samuel, I've sinned. For I've transgressed, transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared, feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow down before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you. For you have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day, and has given it to your, a neighbor of yours who is better than you. Now, it goes on for a, a, a little bit more, and he begs Samuel and Samuel turns around and tries to intercede, and it's basically the last time Saul and Samuel are going to see each other. So, I want us to get past the commandment to kill everyone, because I don't have the answer. The answer requires us to have faith that God is holy God, and that he's a merciful and just God. The Amalekites have spent 400 years chasing after the death and destruction of Israel. It isn't just a momentary thing where they did a moment. Generations have come and gone. They're a group that worships in a pagan way with sexual worship and all the way to child sacrifice. And when Israel was fleeing, there was a time when they, they, they would come behind and they would kill those that were slower, those who were usually the older, the disabled, and the women with small children. And they were set on destruction of God's chosen people. See, when I think about sometimes God's will, I can't put it in context for somebody else. I can only put it in context for me. And one of the simplest ways is if I'm in a maze 
and I can't see around the corners or over the top. God is above and sees it all and knows where every path leads. He has a plan, and his plans are for good. So I want us to get past that part of the commandment. I want to get to the reaction and the choices that were made by Saul. I also want to point out, did you notice it says in here that Samuel was angry? And why was he angry? He was angry because of the injustice of all of the work that God has done and all of the work that he has done to promote this man to be the king, the prince of Israel, and he had once again failed. And he wasn't angry at God's judgment or he wasn't angry at God's commandment. He was angry at the man Saul because Saul did something that we all do. So, Trying to put this in context for myself is relatively difficult. And then suddenly it was made really clear. My question is, do you believe that God is a holy God? And do you believe that he is for you? And do you believe that he has plans that are just plans for us to succeed Do you also believe that there are going to be hardships in this world and difficult situations? And that just because we choose to become a follower of Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, the one who's defeated Satan's sin and death, does not mean that we just get an easy ride. We're in a world filled with sin, and he calls us not to be in it, not to be of it. We're going to reside in it, but don't be of the world, which means... Don't listen to all of the junk out there. And the junk is really, really, really loud. I doubt that God's will for any of us, in fact, I can assure you, is not to go oppress a group of people or a nation or to go to war with them. That is the New Testament times. Things have changed for us. And the only reason it's changed for us is because of Jesus who came and fulfilled all of the law and all of the promise. And now we can be right with Jesus again. That's what it's about. So what is your particular story? We don't have time to go through everybody's story tonight, but what's your story? I mean, we didn't, most of us just suddenly wake up at whatever age and become a follower of Jesus. Usually there was a path. And the thing that gets exciting for me is during the course of that path, there's usually some times when we're really, really intentionally close to God, that we see his majesty and we see his miracles in our life, and we don't just take them for granted, and we don't get distracted. We're focused. In fact, we want a little soapbox that we can put down and stand up on and be taller so people can listen. We want to tell them. And then it fades away. Part of that's the human condition. Somewhere along the ride, we have this peak. And then it usually comes down to a valley. We can't live at a peak. We don't have enough energy for that. It's not healthy. We're going to have valleys and peaks and valleys and peaks. And where the valley goes is the part that I'm talking about. 
Because the peak moments are amazing. I don't know if sometimes you hear a song and it's just like, I don't understand how I could ever have a lack of faith. And then 24 hours we have a lack of faith. I want to dwell on the failure, but I want to dwell on what is our responsibility and how we respond. God tears away a kingdom from a king because he took half measures. He said, this is what you're to do. And it's so typical because when Saul goes to repent, he says, uh, yeah, it was the people. I was afraid. Oh, the reason that I don't like that is because I use that myself sometimes, that type of a thing. It was a people. I was kind of afraid. It's really, well, golly, that kind of reminds me a little bit of the uh, Garden of Eden. When sin happens, and what does Adam say? That woman that you gave me, he never admits responsibility. And again, we see that there's no ownership taken. And, and, and now that the kingdom is going to be taken away, he's pleading. He's pleading with Samuel, please don't go away. Samuel turns to leave and symbolically he grabs the hem of his robe. It tears off. Saul is a strong, large, handsome man with all the muscles in the world. And when he grabbed that and Samuel kept walking, it just stayed in his hand. And he has this torn piece of garment. It's just like God ripping the kingdom away. Now, God says, I regret. I regret making him king. That's not that God made a mistake. It's regrets the actions that he's now going to have to take to set it right again. God didn't make a mistake, but he does feel regret. So Saul and Samuel, Samuel loved Saul and He's talked into hanging out just a little bit and placating a little bit. But it's the end of their relationship. And it seems like it's the end of the relationship with God for Saul. That is scary. So I have this uh, privilege. And... and Sometimes I get tired of sharing a little bit of my story. But then I remember the story is really not about me. And the reason that God allowed me to have the story, I think, is to continue to share it. And I'm going to reference this. You know, we we talk about uh, the Bible being the good book. Uh, In the program of AA, there's the big book, um, which is totally 100% linked to the good book. So the big book in AA world is, is, is something uh, that you can only experience if you went what I went through. Everything that led to me ending up around the AA table was my choice and my sin. There was no blame. There was only one person, and it was me. And everything in AA taught me about me and my responsibilities. And it's basically saying, don't be like Adam, where as soon as you're busted, then you're remorseful. 
And as soon as you're busted in your confession, you end up throwing someone else under the bus. That's not the plan. The plan is to own it. The plan is to look with a sober mind and myself. And it's to rely on a holy God. Sometimes I get in trouble for saying this, but in my mind, if someone comes into AA and they work the entire program, it's the 12 steps to Jesus Christ. That's what it really is. It's the 12 steps to Jesus. You know, there's statistics all over the world, and, and, and I, sometimes I really like statistics, and when it comes to the successful, uh, how do we get people off from drugs and alcohol, um, every program's a failure. Uh, but I've been around for a minute in AA, and I don't even know how long I've been sober. It's 30, do you remember, Hyde? 35 years. So 35 years worth of experience I'm going to share with you. People who come into the program, the common success rate is around 20%. It means those are people who stop drinking or manage a life somehow or other that they don't end up in trouble with the law. That's not really a high bar as far as I'm concerned. But the failure rate, I don't want to look at that so much at the moment, is the success rate. It's the people who come in that are broken and begin to admit some things about themselves, uh, and then they work all 12 steps. See, the first three steps are, are all here. It's, it's all here and here. It's your heart. Uh, and, and then there's actual work to do, and then it's a continual thing to continue to work these principles in your life and to help others. That's what the whole program basically is. But those that come in and only do a little bit... And they're terrified of the fourth step, and they never do it. I see two results. And one is they go use again, which can be beneficial because maybe next time it'll be more serious for them. And other times they stay kind of sober, but most people around them just wish they would continue to drink because they're that miserable to be around. And I've spent a lot of time with both. And my heart breaks to say it's the same for the church. See, the, the thing is, is called half measures. See, AA works when we take a program and we take it seriously and we go, this is something that can actually save my life. And by life, I don't just mean physical life, but maybe still having a home to go to and still having relationship with people who care and love about me. And it takes something called complete abandon. So it says half measures avail us nothing. So if you come into the program and you only do half or less than half or three quarters and less than three quarters, if you're, if you're not dedicated to the program, if, you, if it isn't, it's just not that important to you, you're not going to make it. You're not, you're, you're, you're going to, 
You've got a built-in forgetter in your brain, and that's a human thing. And uh, the same exact thing with Christianity is we find Jesus, and there's a sense of relief and purpose and meaning, and something has changed in our life, and, and suddenly we feel this sense of value that we've never felt before, and that maybe there's something useful I can do in life, and I don't exactly know what that is, but it could be really cool, and there's this God that I don't completely understand yet, but he loves me. He, he has this forgiving heart that's just magnificently huge because he can forgive even me. And, and then we're on fire and we go for a while and then it's almost like a sparkler that just ends up burning out. We drop it. And then the built-in forgetter, we start to forget some of the things we felt and some of the things we learned, and we don't have any support. And so we begin to go, well, you know, I, I don't feel like going to church this week, or I don't feel like reading scripture this day, or maybe I, I'm just tired of praying. And I begin to abandon those things. And after a while, we find ourselves right back where we were. God gave Saul a very painful but very specific plan. And he didn't follow through with it. And he didn't follow through with the plan completely. There was no half measures about not following through with the plan. He even he kept the king alive for a period of time. And if you read the rest of the chapter, you'll find out what happens to the king. And then all of the fatted calves and all of the good lambs and all of the good livestock, and it says everything that was valuable, some money, okay? Can we just get over it? It was money. If there was gold, if there was something that was appealing the sinful nature of man, rather than obey the king of kings, they began to reap the harvest, so to speak. Only it was a poisonous harvest. It was a time when Saul's heart was there and he was in it to win it, and then it faded. He goes back to being himself, but he's still incredibly brilliant because he doesn't take ownership. He blames those around him. In fact, a little further on, he's begging Saul not so much that he gets redeemed with God, but so the other people around him won't think he's a bad guy. Well, I can look down on that, but then I can also go, yeah, that was me. That was me before. And maybe this story is here as a reminder to Tim that this fire that can be is my responsibility to tend. It's nobody else's responsibility. You know, if we leave an organization, if we leave a church, if we get frustrated with something, often, you know, well, I didn't like the music because it was this. It's like, no, that's not the problem. I don't ever say that. I say, bless you. God loves you. Find another church that preaches Jesus. Or nobody reached out, or there wasn't this. Or, and it's always blaming somebody else rather than taking ownership for ourselves. Half measures. We take it for granted. I used to sit in church as a judgmental, wicked man, and I couldn't really hear what the pastor says, because I didn't like how he looked. And he had 
a really terrible speaking voice. And that's a shame on me. And that had nothing to do with anyone other than me letting the fire go out. Getting it restarted is hard. I've had a lot of people say, Tim, I wish I had your story. No, you don't. It's a terrible story. You don't want that at all. It's horrible. It It was a life of hell and discomfort and zero peace and absolutely zero meaning. We're not all going to be like Saul where we're given a kingdom. Except the kingdom is your own heart. That's your kingdom. And way too often we spend our time looking at other hearts. This whole political realm right now, I'm so over it. Uh, I don't really have anything to say other than please be cautious that you don't get so distracted that that's your worship because I promise you every human on be, being on earth will worship something and it's sad when I watch Christians begin to worship politics because it's a half measure it says this uh There's this guy named Paul Churchill, and back in uh, January of 2018, he had a podcast, and I'm just going to read a tiny bit of it. He's in the recovery world, the working with alcoholic world or drug addicts, and uh, alcoholics and drug addicts, they're the same. They, they just have misplaced worship with something that's very addictive chemically and physically. That's, that's it. But it's misplaced worship is what it is. So it really relates to all of us. But he says this, half measures availed us nothing. We stood at the turning point. We asked his protection and care with complete abandon. That's a direct quote out of the preamble in AA. The phrase is commonly heard in 12-step meetings. When it comes to recovery, a half-hearted attempt could have disastrous results. Recovery can be confusing. Half measures might yield mediocre results in other areas of life, but due to the nature of the beast, unfortunately, the truth is that alcoholism cannot be defeated while alcohol is still being consumed and thus requires one to quit drinking completely in order to successfully move forward without alcohol. come in and you're brand new and alcohol has been a massive part of your life, uh, the thought of never having alcohol is terrifying. And it's an impossible mountain to even think of beginning to climb because I know I will fail. That's why they do one day at a time. That's how Christ desires us to live is one day at a time. And he wants us to look at our sinful nature and the half measures that we choose to put forth as our effort the same way that an alcoholic looks at alcohol. Remember that it's just a little sin. No, it's not. It's a sin. There's not degrees. Nothing that is unholy can go before God who is holy. That's a fact. 
See, David, who's coming down the pipeline here in our series, is a man after God's own heart. Now, the beautiful thing is, is Samuel, not like God, is a sinner. But he's wholeheartedly into it. Saul, who's gone before him, was filled with half measures, and it availed him nothing, nothing. When we stand before the king of kings, are we going to say, I gave you half of my attention? I gave you half of my effort? You know, life was really busy. It really was. It was really busy. And besides, you know, the, the Christians, um, they're really no fun. I was afraid I was going to lose all my fun. So I kind of was like half fast with everything. Sorry about that. I'm still in, right? Oh, I don't know the answer to that because I don't know God's mind and I don't know people's hearts. That's between you and God. But half measures, it, it's lukewarm. And it, it's a spiral. We have to fire up the furnace again in order to move forward. We can let it cool and we'll keep moving backwards. One of the ways is if you could listen to your own complaints. And if you can go back for a little while, if you have that type of recall, how many of your complaints involve the word I? Because that's half measure. I didn't like the food. I didn't like the way that person did that. I didn't like, I, I don't, I wish. Samuel tells Saul it's about him. He commanded. He desires. He wants. He's giving you complete direction. How many times do we ask for that? Half measures avail us. Nothing. Back to AA, when I watch the success of AA, it's this. Those that come in that work the steps, that have reached their bottom, that are serious about somehow changing their life, it's not easy by any means. It is simple, but it's not easy. But I'm going to tell you, those that really go for it, the success rate is it, it's 99 0.9% when we work the whole program. And the sadness with all of the years of experience of watching those out there that don't do that and watching them fall off the wagon, whatever you want to call it, and hit into a pile of pain once more, I feel sad about that. And those that stick it out and work and, and go for it, it has nothing to do with willpower. It has everything that they're going with complete abandon towards this thing called sobriety. How much more so might we want to have the word complete abandon? I don't care what anybody else thinks. I'm a Christian. I follow Jesus. Enough said. Band's going to come out. Um, I'm going to ask if you'd bow your heads. So, 
those of us that believe, God wants complete obedience. He doesn't want partial and he doesn't really want excuses. No blaming anyone else. He's not asking us to rewrite his desires and his commands so that it fits my terms. He's asking us to adjust to his terms. It isn't about comfort. It's, a, it's not about convenience. Sometimes the job is hard, but the rewards are astounding. And if you don't know Jesus yet, I don't want you to miss out on how loved you are by God anyways, just as you are. But his desire is that same relationship. So whether it's here or Manistee or online or maybe just someone sharing this with somebody else, it's my ultimate goal is for those that are still suffering. And in my mind, that's those who don't know Jesus There's no amount of right words for someone who doesn't know Jesus to say other than, I'm in, I believe, help me. Zaya says, God is good, and may you find him now. Amen.